Hello, and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. This week's episode covers another infamous fire in history, the Great Fire of London. The original one. Not the big-budget sequel 300 years later. This is the first Great Fire of London that occurred from Sunday, September 2nd, 1666, to Thursday, September 6th, 1666. London in the 1660s was an interesting place. In 1665, London had been hit by the Great Plague of London, which killed about 100,000 people. And I have to imagine, the citizens of London thought it couldn't get any worse. But, as we have learned every single week, it can always get worse. At the time, London was by far the largest city in England. It's still the largest city in England, and around then was boasting almost 500,000 citizens. But it was not a well-designed or a pleasant city to look at. The city was not planned at all. It had started as a Roman settlement and had grown organically, having long since grown outside of the city walls put up by the Romans. The original Roman settlement sat upon the north bank of the River Thames, The city wall stretched from the River Fleet in the west to the Tower of London in the east. Most of the city contained within the wall was medieval. This meant that it was haphazardly built, and crucially, was almost entirely built of wood. The only parts of the city center that were not wood were the mansions of the wealthy merchants. The rest of the city center was made up of various workplaces that were definitely not a good idea to have around a massively overcrowded area made up entirely of wood. These workplaces were foundries for making metal casings, which requires high heat, smithies for making metal weapons, which also requires high heat, and glazers for making glass, which, you guessed it, requires high heat. These were all technically illegal inside the city walls, but inside the city walls was where all the work and commerce was, so that was definitely not going to be enforced. And then, there were actual houses within the city walls. Well... Houses is not technically the accurate word. Uh, Sky-high wooden death traps feels significantly more accurate. Because London had grown so quickly and outgrown the area within the walls, that space for new construction was extremely limited. But the population kept growing. So, in order to support the continuously growing population, there was only one way for buildings to go. Up. There ended up being six- and seven-story timber-built tenement houses. But when they realized they couldn't go up any higher, and they couldn't expand any wider at the base, they decided to expand at the top. The tenement houses would stretch out over the streets and almost touch across the street. So you'd have tenement houses that were six- and seven-stories, and they'd have a very narrow base on one side of the alley, and then built up, and then they would support it straight out over the over the street, and they'd almost be touching. Which is crazy to think about, because if one of those buildings happens to fall, then, I mean, we all play dominoes, so you've basically got dominoes. One building falls over, the next building falls over, the next building falls over. That is terrifying. And then, there's the fire danger. If you have a fire in one building, it's basically touching the building across the street, And it's basically touching the building next to it because they have no room to expand either way. 
So you have fire in one building, it's going to easily spread across the street and to the house next to it. It was like standing a bunch of matches up next to each other, lighting one, and hoping the rest of them didn't go. Basically, anyone that was thinking slightly hard about it would have figured out that this was a massive fire danger. And in 1661, King Charles II also realized this was a massive fire danger and issued proclamation forbidding overhanging jetties like these. This was largely ignored by the local government within the walls of the city of London because it was already built and they didn't want to deal with it. Then, King Charles II tried to put forth a more stringent proclamation in 1665 authorizing the imprisonment of people who built these structures and allowing them to be torn down. This was also ignored by the city. So you've got six and seven story buildings that are made out of timber and you can't just have wood exposed to the elements all the time. It rains a lot in England. So you really need something wrapped in it to have some form of water repellent. And oftentimes that water repellent was tar paper. And tar paper is literally paper infused with various petroleum products. So it burns and it burns very, very, very well. Many of these houses were wrapped from ground to roof. Speaking of the roof, thatch roofing was very common within the city of London and England in general, but that's besides the point. Thatch roofing, in simple terms, is compressed dry vegetation used as a roof. It is layered down to help funnel water down towards the edge of the roof and off into the street. Oftentimes in England, thatch roofs were made of long straw and water reeds weaved together. Because of how thatched roofing is made, embers are able to become trapped underneath and between the weaved portions of the roofs. And all that dry, dead vegetation makes for fantastic fuel for fire. Because thatched roofs tend to wear down, they must be replaced every several years. And rather than take the time to tear off the entire roof and risk the interior of the house being subjected to the outside elements for extended periods of time while the roof is being replaced, the old thatched roof was often just built over with another layer of thatching. And many of these buildings within the city were 100 plus years old, as this was the older part of London. So in some cases, you had thatched roofs that were several feet thick with different layers of thatching. It was like giving the fire a birthday cake. Just layers upon layers upon layers of the most excellent food to feed this fire and allow it to continue to spread. Once the fire hit those thatched roofs and was able to spread, everything was doomed. If it seems like this is just the most ridiculous combination of things to make the biggest fire possible, you're not wrong. It does seem like we're just trying to make this as ridiculous as possible. London was constantly catching on fire, but it had yet to have the big fire. And that's just what the buildings are made out of. We haven't even talked about what's in the buildings yet. So let's talk about what was inside these buildings. Oftentimes, you had beds that were made of straw and various wood furniture and paper materials and stuff like that. And a lot of it had very weird fire loads. Most places were kept warm via a fireplace, so you had to have somewhere to store your firewood, either out back or inside, depending on how well you trusted weather and all that. It's hard to put this in a modern firefighting standpoint because the fire loads in these buildings were so significantly different. 
because you didn't have building codes. So you could have a store of firewood on the seventh floor that's just a room full of firewood for no apparent reason. Besides, there was somebody living on the seventh floor that wanted to warm their room. And so you go near this building and all of a sudden it comes toppling down and there's just significantly more wood to burn that came out of nowhere. That stuff doesn't happen in nowadays, but back then when you have people building across the street just to make more room, there was no way to expect what the fire load in a certain building was going to be. I realize I've said fire load a bunch without explaining it. Fire load is basically what is available in the building that can burn, that can contribute to the size of strength and duration of the fire. And one thing that was in a lot of these houses that is a major source of concern for anyone trying to fight it was black powder. I had mentioned before that the city more or less ignored what King Charles II had to say and straight up went against his proclamations. The reason for this was multifold, but primarily because many of the magistrates of the city were veterans of the English Civil Wars. I'm not going to call three distinct wars a single civil war. That's just silly. The first civil war ended at Nasby. The second one ended with King Charles I's execution. The third one ended when the Royalists lost at Worcester. But anyway, that is besides the point. Many of the citizens inside the city of London had sided with the parliamentarians and fought against the tyranny of King Charles I what they thought it was tyranny of King Charles I. And because a lot of the soldiers for the parliamentarians and its new model army came from the city of London, black powder was very common in basements and tenements and stored in random locations. It was also extremely common along the riverfront of the Thames, held in large stock in wooden barrels. As a quick aside, black powder does not detonate. It's a common misconception. It does not detonate. It deflagrates. So instead of exploding, black powder burns rapidly and creates a wave. The propagation of the wave is subsonic in black powder, whereas in a detonation such as dynamite, the wave is supersonic. So deflagration is slower than sound, and detonation is faster than sound. But the requirement to create this wave to cause the propulsion of the projectile is containment. Containment is essential in creating a deflagration of black powder, otherwise it just burns. This works in things like metal pipes and weapons and, you know, wooden barrels. So, to sum up London in September of 1666, we have buildings that are made up of the most flammable stuff they can find, full of the most flammable stuff they can find, with random stores of black powder all over the place. And it's completely dry from a super hot summer with a drought. This can only be described as a campfire the size of a city. So, what was being done in 17th century London to hopefully prevent or stop a fire from happening? Firefighting in the 17th century wasn't super great. It was less firefighting and more fire praying it will just stop burning and maybe rain as we desperately pull down buildings to create fire breaks. When a fire breaks out, there needs to be an alarm to let people know to either evacuate or to fight the fire. London did not have a fire department or a fire brigade in 1666. What London did have was a militia known as the Trained Bands. 
Their job was to respond to general emergency and should be on fire watch, in theory. But in practicality, the more common way of discovering fires was neighbors paying attention to the nearby houses and setting off the church bells to notify others that there was a fire. So, let's assume in a perfect world, the proper people have been notified, people have evacuated, and it's time to put out the fire. The plan was to have teams of people line the road on either side to pass buckets from the River Thames to the burning building or buildings. Should work in theory. Everybody knows what a bucket brigade is. London also had an early version of the fire engine. It was essentially a giant pump on a sled. They would be dragged to the Thames, filled with water, then dragged to the fire scene. They were limited in their use, though. First, dragging them on a sled is a lot of work and quickly would tire out firefighters. Second, they didn't have hoses. They only had spigots. So, they would have to put the engine super close to the burning building, which is hot, and eventually the fire would grow too hot and the engine would be rendered useless. They couldn't get close enough for the spigot to spray water on the fire, which, you know, doesn't help. Which brings us to the next firefighting tactic, and my personal favorite, demolition. The first plan for demolition was often to just pull down neighboring buildings. For this, they used what are called pike poles or fire poles. They're just long poles with hooks on the end of them that a team of people would use to pull down the building. This tactic was used to create fire breaks. Fire breaks are spaces between the burning area and unburned area. Hopefully with a large enough fire break, they could isolate the fire to burning only the fuel that remained in the already burning area and prevent further spread. If they could not do this fast enough with pike poles, they got more creative with their demolition. Remember all that black powder earlier? Yeah, this is going where you think it is going. They would sometimes blow up the buildings with black powder in order to create larger fire breaks faster. Which sounds like a fantastic job, honestly. Here's a bunch of black powder. Go blow up that city block. I would absolutely love to do that. But yeah, the combination of all these tactics would usually be enough to stop most fires before they grew too large. So obviously, all of those tactics are going to fail spectacularly all at the same time, because of course they will. At some time between midnight and 1 a.m. on Sunday, September 2nd, 1666, a fire started in King's Bakery owned by Thomas Farriner on Pudding Lane. The bakery was well known within the city, and Farriner's Bakery had provided the bread for the Royal Navy during the First Anglo-Dutch War between the English and the Dutch Republic. It would have been kind of hard to continue to provide bread to the Royal Navy during the Second Anglo-Dutch War since his bakery burned down. Anyway, back to the timeline. The Fariner family and a maid lived upstairs above the bakery. At some point in the night, Fariner's teenage daughter went downstairs to get a light for a candle. She claims that the fire in the bakery oven was too low and she had to find a flame to light her candle elsewhere. Where she lit that candle is unknown. If I were to speculate, I would imagine she was lying and she got the flame from the oven, especially with how the Fariner family would handle the later investigation. But that's for later. Eventually, the whole family was asleep and woke up to thick smoke and a fire blocking the stairs to the first floor and safe exit. So the family made the decision to climb through a window. Thomas Fariner, his son, and his teenage daughter all made it out to safety. 
Unfortunately, the maid was too afraid to climb through the window and perished in the fire. She was the first victim. The fire began to spread rapidly. It quickly overtook the piles of wood that Thomas Farriner kept outside his bakery for fuel for the oven. And from there, it spread to the neighboring houses. By this point, the neighbors had been awoken by shouts from others screaming fire. Eventually, the parish constables arrived. Parish constables were essentially law enforcement officers. They quickly determined that efforts with water were not achieving much and would not be able to effectively extinguish the fire. So they ordered the nearby houses torn down to create fire breaks, as they should have. The neighbors disagreed with this vehemently and protested the tearing down of the tenement houses. Because of this disagreement, the mayor had to be called in order to settle the dispute and order the tearing down of the buildings. The mayor at the time was a man named Sir Thomas Bloodworth. You are not going to like him by the end of this episode. The mayor was obviously asleep when the fire broke out because, you know, it was 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning and most people were asleep at that time. But that doesn't excuse how he replied when he was woken up to be told of the fire. He said, and I quote, ah, a woman might piss it out. Yeah, that'll come back to haunt him. But he got up and went to the scene anyway. And obviously, he immediately learned the error of his ways and ordered buildings to be torn down to prevent the spread of the fire, right? Please tell me that's what he did. I mean, London has been in a drought basically all summer. The city's insanely dry. The fire is already raging in nearby houses. We have multiple houses on fire. We need to put this out. We need to prevent it from spreading. It's in one of the worst places in the city from a fire spread potential standpoint, with narrow alleys and every building essentially touching the other one. It would be almost criminal negligence to decide, nah, we're not going to do that. But you already know what he decided. Great fires require three things to happen. Number one, good conditions. Check. Number two, failure of fire containment or fire suppression. Check. Three, incompetent leadership. We're checking that off actively. You see, Sir Thomas Bloodworth was afraid of being held financially liable for tearing down the houses if they didn't need to be. And since most people living in the houses were tenants and not the owners, he felt like he didn't have the permission from the right people to order the tearing down of buildings. He also claimed that he didn't have the authority to command the buildings be torn down and that the old order could only come from the king. Now... When you have a fire that is in multiple buildings and rapidly spreading before your eyes, kind of seems like maybe you should take that risk because if you end up having a fire that burns down half the city and kills a bunch of people, not confirmed people, but kills a bunch of people, destroys a bunch of buildings, destroys some very famous buildings, you're going to want to take the chance that maybe we should do something about that. But, uh, no, that's not what he decided. While Bloodworth was being Bloodworthless, a man named Samuel Pepys was being awoken by his maid at about 3 a.m. to let him know that there was a fire in the city. He got up briefly to look at it, decided it was far enough away, and went back to sleep. Again, about 7 a.m., he was awoken by his maid, 
who told him that around 300 houses had burned down and the fire was now burning down Fish Street by London Bridge. Fish Street was obviously near the River Thames. So by Sunday morning, seven hours after the fire was first discovered, it had spread at least one block south and burned down at least one church. He walked down to the Tower of London to fully survey the fire. From there, Pepys could see the fire all around London Bridge. He then climbed back down the Tower of London, got on a boat to observe the fire from a bit closer. Traveling down the Thames, he witnessed the fire spread several blocks east to the steel yard, which contained warehouses and private houses and things of that nature. As Pepys was traveling past the fire, he noticed that most people were no longer trying to extinguish the fire at all. They were just taking their goods and belongings and throwing them into the river, or trying to throw them on any boats that floated by. He also noticed, weirdly enough, that carrier pigeons seemed to be trying to stay near their houses, but were having their wings burned and were falling from the sky. Dead. At this point, with this much burning and conditions essentially perfect for the fire to continue to grow at a rapid pace, it makes sense for everyone to abandon trying to extinguish the fire and just try and get out. With Mayor Blood Worthless refusing to tear down buildings and the fire growing rapidly, it made more sense to save what you could than save yourself. The mayor, to his credit, had called in the few fire engines London had, but they were either too big to fit down the alleyways that the fire was burning on, or, when they tried to fill the engines from the river, they fell in the river and had to be abandoned. Once the fire reached a point where the engines would be of use, the heat radiating was too strong for anyone to get close enough to make the engines effective. There really was no firefighting effort anymore after that. They were trying to make fire breaks, but it wasn't working for them. Peeps, who wrote all this down in his diary, thankfully, so we can read it now, Peeps then traveled down to Whitehall where King Charles II was. He gave his account to the people there and was sent for by the king. King Charles II told Peeps to go find Bloodworth and tell him the king commanded him to tear down as many houses as he needed to to stop the fire. While there, the Duke of York also volunteered Royal Army soldiers to help stop the fire. Peeps eventually found Bloodworth at Canning Street. When informed of the king's command, he replied, Lord, what can I do? I am spent. People will not obey me. I have been pulling down houses, but the fire overtakes us faster than we can do it. Which, yeah, that makes sense. He had decided against pulling down houses when it could have done some good, so now he was behind the eight ball and trying to play catch-up with a fire that had no breaks at this point. Not helping Bloodworth was there was also a strong wind blowing from the east was pushing the fire and embers over any fire breaks they were able to successfully make. And if you're having an issue making fire breaks fast enough, it would make sense to want more workers to make the fire breaks faster, which was super helpful of the Duke of York to volunteer those soldiers. But Bloodworth, who is yet again showing that he is blood worthless, apparently thought that they were doing a fantastic job because when Pepys informed him of the Duke of York's offer of more soldiers, he turned it down for whatever reason, which was, it was a decision he made. And then Bloodworth, the man who is supposed to be in charge of the operation of stopping this massive fire now threatening the entire city, decided he was tired and he went home. Because when you make a series of baffling decisions, why not throw one more on the pile? 
So now the fire was officially out of control. There was nothing anyone could do except hope it stopped. And then the fire did something that is relatively rare, except in the most severe of cases. It created its own weather system. There's a phenomenon called the chimney effect. In a confined tall space, the heated air will rise up rapidly, leaving a vacuum at ground level. This draws in fresh cool air and supplied more oxygen for the massive fire. It also created its own wind that allowed the fire to continue to spread further into the city center. It was officially a firestorm. One of the major issues with the developing situation was the narrowness of the streets in London. Thousands of people were trying to evacuate. There were at least 80,000 people living in, within the city walls of London. But there was not room for all of these people and their stuff. People would often pack up their stuff to move to a safer house further from the fire, only to have to pack up their stuff again to move to someone else's house further from the fire, then do it again, because it just kept spreading. The fire seemed to be chasing the citizens of London from house to house. The traffic jams caused by the people fleeing from the fire also massively hampered anyone who was still crazy enough to be trying to fight the firestorm. And you'd have to be crazy to be trying to fight that thing at this point. By Monday, the fire had burned all the houses along the London Bridge, but otherwise spread south had stopped. There was a pre-existing fire break on the south end of the London Bridge thanks to the previous fire in 1632. The fire at this point was primarily spreading north and west. It had finally reached the financial part of the city within the city walls of London. Houses of bankers nearby were rapidly being evacuated of gold coins to prevent the gold coins from melting. To describe how bad it really was at this point, throughout history, when crap hits the fan, all efforts are put into saving the things of the rich and powerful. They have the money, they get the support. But the situation was so dire and so out of control that there was basically no effort made to save any of this stuff, besides the gold coins, that is. John Evelyn, a diarist, wrote, The conflagration was so universal and the people so astonished that from the beginning, I know not by what despondency or fate, they hardly stirred to quench it so that there was nothing heard or seen but crying out and lamentation, running about like distracted creatures without at all attempting to save even their goods. Such a strange consternation there was upon them. Although some people did manage to make themselves a pretty penny out of this tragedy, some of the rich wanted desperately to get their items out of the city, and so they would hire able-bodied poor people that were running by to carry their things out. Oftentimes they didn't get these things back. The cost of renting a cart skyrocketed during the fire. Oftentimes, when they would get to the River Thames to try and move their stuff out, it would be 10, 20, 30 times what a normal price would be for a boat just to move their stuff. Because of this rush of people trying to escape the city, the gates out of the main city of London became jam-packed with people. Now, I feel like I've been almost mean to Thomas Bloodworth to this point, because he has made some terrible decisions. But I just want to bring to the record that he is not the only one who made bad decisions. At some point on Monday, the magistrates decided it would be a good idea to shut the gates of the city to force people still trapped inside to focus on extinguishing the fire rather than saving themselves and their stuff. 
this was predictably a bad decision and was quickly reversed. But then the rumor started. Because of the size of the firestorm and the wind created from it, it was blowing embers and sparks away from the fire and starting new, unrelated fires on the thatched roofs far from the main fire. This obviously started rumors that this, these new fires were being set on purpose. Any foreigner immediately became a suspect, especially if you were Dutch or French. England was at war at the time with the Dutch Republic, and many believed the fire was purposely set by the agents of the Dutch. Reports circulated of imminent invasion and unsubstantiated rumors of undercover agents seen casting fireballs, throwing grenades, and lighting matches in houses. There was also religious paranoia that fires were started by the Catholics as a renewed type of gunpowder plot, and it only got worse from there. The General Letter Office, which handled all mail in the kingdom, burned to the ground early Monday morning. The London Gazette managed to get out the Monday issue before the paper's building burnt to the ground. There was no communication that was able because all of the communication ability in London was burnt. By late Monday, the trained bands and the Coldstream Guard, a military unit called to help with the extinguishment of the fire, abandoned all pretense of actually fighting the fire and began to make mass arrests of anyone they thought was acting suspicious. On Monday afternoon, King Charles II put his brother James, the Duke of York, in charge of all operations to stop the fire. Bloodworth seems to have just completely disappeared from the city at the time, which honestly was probably for the best. He was really bad at it. The fire continued to spread overnight into Tuesday. On Tuesday, the Duke of York and his firefighters made a stand on the Fleet Bridge to stop the fire crossing the River Fleet. Unfortunately, that did not work. The eastern wind and the wind created by the firestorm blew the fire across the river fleet and outflanked them. They were then forced to retreat. They also attempted to create a fire break north of the fire to prevent northern spread. It worked, or a little bit, but it then jumped that fire break and burned an entire shopping district to the ground. There was one building in the city of London that was in the path of the fire that many thought would be able to withstand the flames now engulfing what felt like the entire city. St. Paul's Cathedral. The cathedral was made of stone and was surrounded by a wide, empty plaza. It had been completely stuffed full of random things people were trying to save. And in a super unfortunate turn of events, the basement was filled to the brim with various books and printing material because the cathedral was on the same square as where most books were made in the city. But all of that is safely inside those stone walls. There's nothing on the outside that can catch fire, right? Of course there was. The cathedral was undergoing renovations and was surrounded by wooden scaffolding. With the embers and sparks blowing around, the wooden scaffolding eventually caught fire on Tuesday night. Not long after that, the lead roof was melting, and the giant pile of super flammable books in the crypt were in flames. St. Paul's Cathedral was doomed. And with that super strong wind blowing out of the east, you would think that it wouldn't have traveled the other direction. You would be wrong. It began to rapidly spread towards the Tower of London, which was east of where the fire started. The garrison there had tried in vain all day to get firefighters to come help stop the fire's advance that direction. Those pleas did not get answered, mostly because the firefighters were busy with 
you know, the rest of the city. So the garrison decided to fix the problem themselves. They didn't have the pike poles available to make fire breaks. They couldn't get to the river, and a bucket brigade's not going to help. So they had to come up with something different. What did the Tower of London have in massive amounts? Black powder. So what did they do? What anyone else would do? They rigged up a bunch of black powder and started blowing up houses in mass. And you know what? It worked. The fire stopped spreading towards the Tower of London. Eventually, the wind died down, and the fire breaks over the city started to take effect on Wednesday. The city was basically destroyed, and it finally rained on September 9th, 1666, and extinguished most of the remaining fires. It is claimed that embers burned in cellars almost two months later, though. Finally, the Great Fire of London was over. Officially, only eight deaths were recorded as due to the fire. This is complete hogwash. Temperatures in this fire would have been more than high enough to incinerate bone or human flesh or anything like that. And with fires this size, it's going to be really hard to find the remains that you need to be able to tell if they're human or not. And in the 17th century, who knows if they're going to be able to tell if it's human or animal or whatever. It is laughable to imagine that 17th century London could evacuate 80,000 plus people in a few hours and only have eight deaths. That would be nearly impossible to do now with cell phones and televisions and all that. That would be an, a miracle now. The streets back then were narrow and difficult to navigate. There were thousands of people trying to pull all of their stuff. They were all in the streets trying to get out. So it's more likely the death toll is in the hundreds, if not in the thousands. The total loss of buildings has been calculated to be approximately 13,000 homes, 87 parish churches, 44 trade halls, the Royal Exchange, which housed a bunch of shops, the Customs House, St. Paul's Cathedral, the Bridewell Palace, an old royal home, city prisons, the General Letter Office, and three of the city gates and the old Roman walls. That's not to mention all the shops that burned down and the London Gazette's printing press and all of that that was lost in this fire. The fire stretched from the edge of the Tower of London in the east to beyond the River Fleet in the west. The cause of this fire is technically unknown. I say technically because no one knows exactly what started the fire within the King's Bakery. But it was most likely some failure of the Fariner family to properly extinguish their oven. That definitely didn't stop them from signing a bill saying a French watchmaker named Robert Hubert started the fire. Hubert was rounded up as a foreigner and accused of being a spy for both the French and the Pope. Gave the English a reason to blame the French and the Protestants a reason to blame the Catholics. It's not known if Hubert was falsely confessing because he wanted to or if it was tortured out of him. I'm leaning towards tortured out of him. He was a crippled Frenchman in a country that hated the French. He was also Catholic in a Protestant country. No one would miss him, and no one would notice if he was gone. It also gave King Charles II some cover, since it was starting to be rumored that he started the fire, as revenge for the city giving the parliamentarian support in the English civil wars against his father. Also gives the fiercely Protestant English a way to blame the Catholics, a thing they absolutely love to do, 
ever since the gunpowder plot. Originally, Hubert confessed he started the fire in Westminster. Problem was, the fire didn't actually reach Westminster. Whoops, gotta torture him some more. So, Hubert then changed his confession to say that he had thrown a fire grenade through an open window of the Farriner Bakery. Now, there were three main problems with this new confession. Number one, Hubert was determined to be too crippled to effectively throw a fire grenade, so it was unlikely he had actually done that. Number two, and I mean this almost seems like nitpicking, the bakery didn't have any windows. It's a little difficult to throw a grenade through a window when there isn't a window. And number three, Hubert was determined to be on a boat in the North Sea at the time of the fire. He didn't arrive in London until two days after the fire had started. So it's a bit difficult to start a fire in London when you're in the middle of a sea. But who cares about facts when we have a scapegoat to hang? And the Fariners definitely weren't going to help him. They needed to prove they had properly put out their ovens. Thomas Fariner stated that after midnight, he had gone through every room and found no fire, so it had to be an arson. Robert Hubert was sentenced to death and hanged at Tyburn, London, on October 27, 1666. His body was supposed to be dissected by the company of barber surgeons, but some rage-filled Londoners got a hold of his body and ripped it apart. The city was rebuilt on essentially the same footprint, but with some fire safety changes, thankfully. Number one, wider streets. That helped create built-in fire breaks so they wouldn't have to pull down as many buildings in the future. Second, buildings were built of brick and stone instead of timber. Smart. In this case, a special fire court was created to deal with rebuilding disputes. King Charles II also released multiple proclamations in order to continue to bring food into the city for affected citizens. He also issued proclamations that any town outside of London was supposed to take in refugees from the city and encouraged people to settle outside of London. Another thing that's kind of interesting, some have suggested that the Great Fire of London actually had one major positive impact on the city. It is suggested that the burning of the old city cleaned out and killed the fleas and rats that frequently transmitted the plague. There were essentially no plague epidemics after the Great Fire. It's technically possible, but there were major suburban slums that were untouched by the fire that would have harbored fleas and rats, so it can't really be proven. The Great Fire of London is by far one of the worst fire disasters in history. Unfortunately, this was only the first Great Fire of London. Almost 300 years later, London would burn again. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Disastrous History. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Disastrous, H-S-T-R-Y, so Disastrous History with no vowels, and on Instagram at Disastrous History, spelled correctly. Stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.